Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Judges, Judges chapter 19. We've been working through the book of Judges in our evening service, and the book of Judges is all about how the people of God, how Israel became just like the nations. It's a story of sin, rebellion, and death. That's the story of the book of Judges. And in a world where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, that's the refrain here at the end of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in that sort of world, not surprisingly, the story gets more and more out of control. And Judges 19 is the worst story in the whole book. When I realized we were going to have so many visitors this evening, I nearly changed texts. It's a horrible story. But as I reflected on this text, and as I thought about who would be here, I realized that this horrible story was given to us by God precisely for the sake of our children. After all, the book of Judges was written as a sermon. Uh, we oftentimes refer to it as, as one of the historical books, but they were originally called the, the former prophets. They're preachers. They're telling us stories to show us something that we need to hear. It was warning the people of God, the generations who would come, not to follow the path of oppression, wickedness, and vice. It won't do to pretend that bad things don't happen. The Word of God tells us plainly that bad things do happen. Horrible things happen. We don't always understand why. The people in our story did not understand at the time why this was happening. But our text for tonight shows us how much we need a king from Bethlehem. No, not a king from Gibeah, but a king from Bethlehem. One who will do what is right in God's eyes and will, who will lead us to do what is right in God's eyes. Because as the refrain of the book of Judges says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So hear the word of the Lord from Judges chapter 19. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, strengthen your heart and wait till until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. 
He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, and they turned aside there to go in and spend the night in Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. This is the word of the Lord. Be. We don't have time to get all the way to the end of the story. There's two more chapters that are actually rather long in, them, in their own rights. But I will mention up front that that reaction at the very end of the chapter carries on through the next chapters. Israel insists on bringing judgment against Benjamin for doing such a horrendous, horrible thing. When Benjamin refuses to hand over the guilty, Israel will go to war in order to bring justice to the oppressed. If you cover for rapists and murderers and try to shield them from justice, then you share in their guilt. That, that's where the story is going. In our day, we've watched as, as powerful people try to cover the sins of the guilty and shield them from justice. That's wrong. 
And as, in spite of how, how bad everything goes in these last couple stories in the book of Judges, Israel does get the basic point. If you defend the guilty, you share in their guilt. Also, next week we'll find out when this story took place because next week we'll hear that the high priest in those days was Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. In other words, this story actually takes place toward the beginning of the time period of the judges. It's just a few years after the death of Joshua. It may be the last story in the book of Judges, but it takes place toward the beginning of the period of the judges. But Phineas is the only person named in these entire three chapters. No one else is named. Now, throughout the book of Judges, we've seen occasionally there are unnamed people, but usually most of the people are named. When they're unnamed, what's, it, what's going on? Well, it has the effect of making the story about all Israel. This is a reminder of what happens when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And the opening line in chapter 19 reminds us that in those days there, there was no king in Israel. We need a king. We need a king who will do what is right in God's eyes. We need a king who will lead us to do what is right in God's eyes. Now, our, our story tonight centers around two cities, Bethlehem in Judah. You may have noticed that every time that this Bethlehem is named, it gets repeated. <laughs> As if, to, hey, remember, we're Bethlehem and Judah, Bethlehem and Judah. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? And there was no king in Israel. Who was the king born in Bethlehem? Well, the first king born in Bethlehem was David. But Israel had a king before David. Do you remember where he was born? Gibeah in Benjamin. Hmm, a tale of two cities. A tale of two cities where Israel's first two kings were born. The last story in the book of Judges is asking you, do you want a king from Gibeah? Why would you want a king from Gibeah? Or do you want a king from Bethlehem? Because in those days, a certain Levite sojourning in Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Both here and in the previous story in chapter 17 and 18, a, a Levite in Ephraim has connections to Bethlehem in Judah. Two stories emphasizing Bethlehem. And this Levite takes a, a, a concubine from Bethlehem. Um, a concubine in the ancient world is a wife from a lower social class. So in many cultures, you are only supposed to marry within your social class. And so apparently this woman from Bethlehem in Judah was from a lower social class. So the Levite took her as a concubine, which effectively means a, a, a wife of a lower social order. Now, for some reason, she became angry with him and ran home to her father. Uh, the term is, is used here, it's tra translated unfaithful, literally means playing the prostitute, but it's very similar to a word meaning to become angry, and several ancient translations seem to have based, been based on a manuscript with the word became angry, not with the word played the prostitute. It's hard to know which is the original, but either she committed adultery and ran away, or she became angry with him and ran away. Now, part of it is, the more you get to know the man's character, the more it's like, 
You know, I could see why she might get angry with this guy. But either way, she spends four months living with her father in Bethlehem before her husband comes looking for her. This, this, this already probably has you thinking, what kind of guy is like? Yeah, exactly. What kind of guy is this? But then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. Our author is not very nice to us. He, he gives us reason to have hope. He gives us reason to think, oh, this guy's a nice guy. He's going to speak kindly to her. Mm. But it sounds like he's trying to be a good husband. And, and it only gets better as long as you stay in Bethlehem. Because when he comes to Bethlehem, the girl's father welcomes him gladly. He came with joy to meet him. You might think the father-in-law would not be very happy with this Levite, but he wines and dines his son-in-law. This goes beyond just the normal hospitality. He is celebrating the coming of his son-in-law. It's worth remembering. She's a concubine, and that means her father is of a lower social class than her husband. And yet, he shows the Levite splendid hospitality. You want to see what good hospitality looks like? Go to Bethlehem. Because in Bethlehem, they know how to give people a good time. This is, a, this is wonderful hospitality. This is above and beyond hospitality. The, the concubine's father exceeds even the hospitality of Abraham in Genesis 18. And the clue is actually important because Genesis 18 in your Bibles comes right before Genesis 19. Genesis 19 is where the hospitality of Sodom comes into play. Genesis 18 is where the hospitality of Abraham is contrasted with the hospitality of Sodom in chapter 19. Even so, the hospitality of Bethlehem is contrasted with the hospitality of Gibeah in Judges 19. Abraham welcomed the three strangers and killed the fattened calf for them. Now, the men of Sodom in Genesis 19 did not welcome the two that entered their town. So, but before our little party gets to Gibeah, they first pass by Jerusalem, or, or Jebus, to call it by its older name, where the Jebusites lived. It's about six miles from Bethlehem, and the, the Levite's servant recommends that they stay at Jebus, but, but the Levite is not convinced. He says, oh, it would be better to stay in an Israelite town. So we, we don't, we, you know, these foreigners, we don't, we, strangers, we don't really know. We don't. A little foreshadowing here. It's like, hmm, <laughs> maybe you would have uh, stayed, gotten better hospitality from the Jebusites. Because when they get to Gibeah of Benjamin, no one will take them in. It was customary to take in strangers and provide hospitality for them. But no Benjaminite from all Gibeah will take them in. Now, the, the time of day is highlighted throughout our passage. In, in verse 8, we were told that it was on the fifth day that he arose early in the morning and ate and drank with his father-in-law until the day declined. Then verse 9, her, her father pointed out, the day has waned toward evening. Now they have traveled six miles and the day was nearly over, verse 11, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, verse 14. Little did they know how dark this night would be. The sun has gone down. They're still at the, in, the, in the city center waiting for somebody. And finally, an old Ephraimite who was sojourning in Gibeah takes pity on them. He welcomed them. Nobody from Gibeah brought them into their home. 
Only this old sojourner, this outsider. Now, it's probably true that sojourners may be more sensitive to the needs of strangers than the locals. It can be really easy for the locals to get cliquish. We have our friends. We have our own circles. We, we don't need outsiders. Ever, ever heard the, uh, the, the acronym NIMBY? Not in my backyard. We want to help people. At least we want people to be helped. But if it affects my property value or my quality of life, well, not in my backyard. This old Ephraimite is sojourning in Gibeah. He understands that genuine hospitality will be costly. Genuine love of strangers isn't always easy. While the young man says, we have plenty of food for ourselves, we just need a place to stay, the old man says, shalom, I will take care of all your wants. And he brings them into his house. He demonstrates hospitality, love of strangers, caring for the sojourner, the traveler. There were very few inns in the ancient world. There probably was no inn in Gibeah. Travelers were dependent on the goodwill of strangers. And you'll notice that Ephraimite asks questions before making his offer. He wants to find out, who are you? Where are you from? Where are you going? What's the story? And sure, in our day, we've got certain advantages. There, there's lots of hotels, so when you're traveling, you can just don't have to bother with this. We also have the ability to communicate across the world. It should mean that uh, love for strangers, love for the sojourner, should be practiced better today, right? Now, it can be. Uh, I, I should mention that hospitality, is when, when, Paul, when Paul says that, that the, the elder, the bishop, should be given to hospitality, uh, that, should be, that should characterize leaders in the Church of Jesus Christ. So sometimes when I'm traveling across the country, I, I put it to the test to find out, oh, Paul says you're good at hospitality. Any chance that's true? Um, now, I try to give them as much of a heads up as possible, but over the years, I've, I've, I've told, I've told my, my congregation that, that if you're traveling and you need a place to stay, let me know. I, know. I know pastors and elders all over the country, and even if I don't know them personally, I know from the Apostle Paul that they're good at hospitality. So, because Paul says elders are good at hospitality, so that's, I just assume that. And so far, I mean, it's never, it's never failed. There was one time when a church secretary answered the phone and said, we don't do that. But I got a call 10 minutes later from the pastor saying, oh, yes, we do. <laughs> so, but, uh, and it works multiple ways. I mean, we, we once hit a deer in the middle of the night in southern Minnesota, and a parishioner had a friend, pastor friend nearby who, you know, she, when she heard about it, she said, oh, let me call my friend. And so he they got us going, and by the end of the day, we were back on the road again. But alas, that, that's, that's not where our story ends. Now, if you know the book of Genesis well, then you will have already noticed that Judges 19 has lots of parallels to Genesis 19. Lots of parallels to the story of Lot and what happens when Sodom and Gomorrah particularly the city of Sodom, does not treat visitors well. Notice the parallels. So there's a small group of travelers arrives in the city in the evening. No one offers hospitality except one who is himself an alien. 
The travelers expect to stay in the open square. The host brings them in, washes his guests' feet. The host shares a meal with the guests. Then depraved men of the city surround the house and demand that the host deliver the, the male guests to, him, to them so that they can commit homosexual gang rape. And then the host objects. But when the protest proves futile, a substitute female is offered or handed over. And beyond just the thematic parallels, there's a lot of verbal parallels where the author of the book of Judges is plainly drawing on the earlier story. Gibeah is no better than Sodom. Sodom was the city that God destroyed with fire from heaven. There is no other city that parallels the wickedness of Sodom except Gibeah, a city of God's own people. In contrast to the faithful old man of Ephraim, verse 22 introduces the sons of Belial, the worthless men of Gibeah. This phrase, sons of Belial, throughout the, the Old Testament is, is used to refer to worthless and wicked men who do their own, go their own ways. Uh, Belial will wind up getting used centuries later as a, a name for Satan. Back, back then, it basically just meant worthless men. No hospitality is offered by them. No, the very opposite, rape and murder. And the old man characterizes their request as wicked and vile, both because of the law of hospitality, this man has come into my house, and because of the law against homosexuality, Leviticus 18 and 20. But then the old man himself does what is right in his own eyes. He proposes an alternative. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them, literally, what is good in your eyes. In those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is what he's encouraging. It's echoing the refrain that in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Perhaps, perhaps the old man remembered the story of Lot and how Lot had offered his own daughters in place of the two men. Perhaps he thought that his obligation to protect his guest outweighed his obligation to his own daughter or to the man's concubine. Though if he had truly understood the law of hospitality, if he had understood what hospitality itself is pointing to, he would have offered himself. Think of God's hospitality which is offered to us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. God created us, male and female, after his own image. But humanity rebelled against God. We couldn't reach God himself. We couldn't strike back at God, so we did the next best thing. We lashed out at each other. What's the second sin in the Bible? Cain kills his brother Abel. <laughs> that escalated quickly. But that's what sin does we lash out at one another. But then God came in our flesh, in the incarnation when the eternal Son of God came in our humanity. God showed the ultimate hospitality when we were strangers, when we were aliens. And what did we do? We crucified him. We stripped him bare and hung him on a tree. Jesus, the king from Bethlehem in Judah, understood what true hospitality required. If he was going to welcome the stranger, if he was going to bring the wanderer home, he could not offer someone else to the sons of Belial. 
he had to offer himself. Maybe the old Ephraimite remembered the story of Lot. Maybe, maybe the old Ephraimite hoped that an angel would show up and rescue the poor girl. But as we've seen so often in the book of Judges, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, everything goes wrong. And this time, God is silent. There is no angel to protect the honor of the concubine. Neither the old man from Ephraim nor the young Levite are willing to rescue their own, risk their own skin. In fact, it says that the Levite seized his concubine and made her go out to them. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, the result is that the most helpless person in the room suffers. Because if everybody's looking out for number one, everybody's looking out, then, well, whoever's lowest on the, pe- on the pecking order is the one who suffers. Think about what happens when one person starts the chain of, of abuse, when one person starts the chain, and then sort of, the, it sort of goes down, this, and who's the one who's left to suffer? It's the one who's the most helpless. When everyone, who does, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, the helpless one from Bethlehem in Judah suffers. So she's thrust out to the men. And they abused her and discarded her as the sun began to rise. Notice again the time. They abused her all night, verse 25. At dawn, as the dawn began to break, they let her go. As the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. This one from Bethlehem does not rise. She's the helpless one, but... She simply points to the one who would come later. She dies a seemingly pointless, tragic, awful death. Now, the rest of her story will remind us that justice is important, and a community that will allow this to go unpunished will itself be judged. But the author of the book of Judges realizes that her story was part of a picture that God was painting throughout history because this suffering innocent one from Bethlehem is pointing to the one who would come from Bethlehem. This story leads, certainly the author of Judges knows this leads to David, the king from Bethlehem. Though, of course, when, when you remember David's own abuse of power with Bathsheba, you realize quickly that when Judges says we need a king from Bethlehem in Judah, in the end, David's not going to cut it. We need Jesus. We need a king who will not do what is right in his own eyes. We need a king who will not simply pass the buck to the next one. We need one who will do what is right in God's eyes and who will lead us to do what is right in God's eyes. But just as this story points to our need for the king from Bethlehem, so also does every other story that resembles this one. My mother was raped when I was in sixth grade. I remember the day clearly. I didn't know it at the time what was happening. All I knew was my mom came back from work and she, was, she just came charging into the house sobbing, slammed the door, ran to her room, and didn't come out for hours. Years later, I heard the story. 
Her story also shows us our need for the king from Bethlehem. All of our stories ultimately do. And I can understand why many are slow to tell their stories. People often respond badly. In our text, the Levite's response is chilling. Our, our author doesn't provide much commentary. In fact, he doesn't really provide any commentary. But the way he tells the story chills you to the bone. After leaving us with this picture of her dying on the doorstep, we see him come to the door. He's, he's going to go on his way. And he says to her, get up, let us be going. And you're just like, how could one human being possibly say this to another in that context? Men, you are called to protect your wife better than this. And you're called to care for her with gentleness. Part of the reason why my parents divorced was because after that day, my dad could tell there was something wrong. But he figured, oh, if, if it's important, she'll tell me. So he didn't find out for years. Caring with gentleness means loving in such a way that, I mean, he would never put her in that situation to begin with. His speaking kindly to her back in verse 3 now sounds really hollow. Even his summons to all Israel is designed to, to horrify. When he entered his house, I mean, he took a knife and divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. Dismembering a carcass and using it as a message. Now, part of what this is doing is it's supposed to also, because the Israelite reading this, hearing this later will, will know the story of Saul when Saul cut up a team of oxen for this purpose in 1 Samuel 11. But here, this is, this is his wife. And all who saw it. And, and the, the it is ambiguous. They haven't heard the story yet. All they've gotten is the message. The message of one piece of her arriving in their tribe. Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. All through Judges, we've seen how Israel has degenerated to become like the Canaanites. Now we realize it's worse. They have descended to the likeness of Sodom. The prophet Hosea will refer to this episode simply as the days of Gibeah. And all Israel would shudder and say, oh, not, those, not like those days. And so all Israel gathers together. This hasn't happened since the very beginning of the book of Judges. You might think, oh, Gideon surely had the support of all... Nope, not Gideon. Deborah? Nope, not Deborah. Who? No. Never has all Israel gathered together. But now... From, Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, including Gilead, east of the Jordan, 400,000 men gather. None of the judges could do this. Only the outrage against the concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. Only the wickedness of the men of Gibeah and Benjamin. But now all the congregation gathers, 
And actually, it was Phineas who had called them together in Joshua 22. All the congregation except Benjamin. Benjamin hears, but they're not invited. When the Levite tells his story to the assembly, they respond with outrage. And they call on Benjamin to hand over the sons of Belial, the worthless men of Gibeah, so they may be punished. And when Benjamin refuses, Israel goes to war. We'll look at that next week. But the key thing to note is that Israel only figures out how to deal with this when Judah takes the lead and when they worship God aright. If the problem is that everyone does what is right in their own eyes, then the solution cannot be, I can fix it. I'm just one of those people doing what's right in my own eyes. If the problem is that everyone does what is right in their own eyes, then the solution must be, let us humble ourselves before God and worship him and hear him together. As the woman who gave birth to the king from Bethlehem once said, do whatever he tells you. Let us pray. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy, O oh Lord, because we, we see so much that has gone so wrong in, in the world around us. Indeed, so much that has gone wrong in our own stories, in our own lives, and we see how the most helpless person in the room suffers when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy for the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and, and help us to turn away from doing what is right in our own eyes. Help us to heed your Son, the one who was born in Bethlehem, the one who sits at your right hand as King of kings and Lord of lords. Help us to hear him and to do what he has said, that we might listen to the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ and walk humbly before you as your people. Lord, have mercy. Help us to, to bring justice for those who are oppressed and afflicted. Help us to speak true words of kindness and to intervene to bring Bring justice to the oppressed and help to remedy the, the afflictions of, of, of those around us, that we might show forth the, the, the grace and the mercy of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as we walk before you. Lord, help us, because we are weak and, and frail, and we, we don't see clearly, and we are too quick to, to run down our own paths and not see the path of your beloved Son, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, the one who sits at your right hand. Lord, help us in, in every area of our lives, in our, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our communities and neighborhoods. Help us to, to love you, to love those around us, to trust in your promises and to believe in the power of your mighty gospel to bring light into the darkness to shine the glorious light of the resurrection of your Son into the midst of, of a world that is running amok. Lord, have mercy and strengthen us by your Holy Spirit to love you, to love one another, and to walk humbly before you all our days. In Jesus' name, amen.